Good morning. Great to be here. This little letter to Philemon, it's an absolute headache. Um, it's like a Rubik's Cube. Uh, you know, if you turn one part of it, you never know if you're making things better or worse. Um, so here are some of the, the questions that arise. Is Onesimus uh, or onesie to his mates? I thought that would be, you know. Um, is he a runaway slave or not? Where did he find Paul? Why is Paul writing to Philemon? What does he want him to do as a result? The, the thing, actually, that's most often discussed about this letter is whether or not Paul condones slavery. In the past, abolitionists and slave owners have both claimed this letter in support of their views. And um, once you've discussed that issue, you're only really one step away from discussing same-sex marriage because, so the argument goes, well, if Paul was wrong about slave ownership, then doesn't that mean that you know, Paul was just a man of his time, wrong about slaves, and therefore also wrong about same-sex relationships? So this little, little letter of Philemon has quite a lot of, on its shoulders. Um, I think the problem with that way of thinking is that it, it sort of takes our eyes off the real topics of the letter itself. It's perfectly reasonable, and I'll do it later, to sort of draw out implications from, uh, for, you know, for ourselves, for our context. I'll do that later. But the applications need to come from the text rather than pressing the text into the service of a sort of difficult moral contemporary debate. The section that I've been given to consider is verses 8 to 16. It goes like this. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Well, first of all, is this letter to Philemon dealing with a runaway slave? Probably not. The argument hinges upon where Paul is in prison. Traditionally, people have thought this must be in Rome. And if so, then, yeah, Onesimus must have traveled a long way from, uh, uh, from Colossae, where Philemon was, um, and he would have been trying to escape by so hiding in the great metropolis that is Rome. However, the thing that makes this as an unlikely uh, conclusion is that Paul says at the end of his letter to Philemon, he says, prepare a guest room for me. Well, Rome is 1,500 miles away from Colossae, and um, that just makes it far too far to you know, expect a trip for a guest room. 
Whereas Ephesus, on the other hand, was just down the road, a mere 80 miles or so. And so Paul could reasonably have asked Philemon to prepare a guest room for him. Uh, but that means that Onesimus met Paul in jail in Ephesus. And Ephesus, as I say, is just much too close for a place that Onesimus could hide from Philemon's contacts and relations and all the rest of it. And so therefore, it doesn't look to me like Onesimus is running away. What we know is that Philemon has been praised by Paul for refreshing the hearts of the Lord's people. We also know that Paul wants Onesimus to be sent back to him so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. So my view is that Onesimus had in fact been sent by Philemon to provide for Paul whilst he's in prison in Ephesus. And it's whilst he is providing for Paul that he gets saved and that Paul learns about his difficult relationship with his master. Now, this means that we have to sort of rethink why Onesimus is called useless by Philemon. If Onesimus is not escaping, then perhaps it's that he just wasn't very good at the tasks he was given. Uh, his master had a very low opinion of him, calling him useless. It is interesting to think that Philemon, then, had sent presumably his worst servant, the one he called useless, to help Paul out. If you've got a number of cars, but you lend the old banger to your friend, then you're making a statement about how you perceive them. And I think Paul picks up on this when he says that Onesimus could take your place. I think Paul seems to be implying that instead of lending him the old banger, Philemon should have been chauffeuring Paul around in his best car. And so what we're dealing with here is honor, something that was a top priority in first century Asia Minor, but that we've rather lost in our sort of shameless culture. Now, I'm willing to bet that by the time that Philemon got this letter, he'd pretty much already decided what he was going to do. He'd probably sell useless Onesimus to someone else and get rid of him. Uh, maybe give him a bit of a beating before he goes as a lesson to his other slaves not to be useless. Onesimus, it looks like, is a sort of liability in some way, probably making, I don't know, bad business decisions or not carrying out instructions correctly. Maybe Philemon loses money over him or maybe just loses honor. So when Paul writes to him, asking for him to take Onesimus back on the basis of love, I think Philemon will feel like he's being played. Ah, so Onesimus has conveniently become a Christian, has he? And has gone to Paul, as someone he knows Philemon respects, has complained about him to Paul, and now Paul wants to overrule in this private family matter and make it a public church event. So Philemon would have thought that this was a matter of honor to demonstrate his authority. And remember, you know, he's in the right as far as anybody else is concerned at that time. No one thinks Philemon has done anything wrong. And for all we know, he might have been the best slave owner in the region. He has every justification in pressing home his condemnation of Onesimus because Onesimus was a useless slave. And he has good reason to be suspicious of Onesimus' conversion 
because it looks like a ploy to play Paul off against Philemon. It must have felt to Philemon as if he was being done over by a crafty slave. So that, I think, is why this letter is important, because it shows the gospel in action in a difficult situation. Because Paul was no fool. He would have also been suspicious of being played. And he would have realized that this could be a seriously difficult situation for him to fall into. You know, he is in, I think, Ephesus, in jail. And there are not many people in the world who would be willing to help him out and support him. And one of those who was willing was his benefactor, Philemon. He's a prominent member of the small Christian community in Colossae. And if he turns against Paul, well, then that could leave Paul very isolated indeed. I don't know what it was about Onesimus that made Paul believe that his conversion was genuine. Perhaps it was an expression of the gifts of the Spirit. Perhaps it was just a sense that, you know, this was a serious young man who recognized that this was his defining moment in his life that could change him forever by serving the Lord. I don't know. But somehow, Paul was convinced by his conversion, and he took a step of faith and, as it were, went into bat for Onesimus, hoping that he wouldn't let him down. And, you know, he really did go all out for Onesimus. Paul calls Onesimus my son and says of him that he is my very heart. You know, he, he absolutely identifies with this recent convert. He doesn't just give him a character reference. I mean, he does a bit of that by saying, you know, that he is now useful both to you and to me. That's the story. Yeah, he's good. He's good now. But, that, but he does much more than that. He invests his own identity with them. My son, my very heart. The result of this is that it puts Philemon in a very difficult situation indeed. If he rejects Onesimus, he rejects Paul too, but it equally puts Paul in a very vulnerable situation. If Philemon rejects Onesimus, Paul can say goodbye to any further support, and there'll be no guest room waiting for him if he ever does get out of this jail. So, the way that most people think about this letter is um, that it is all about how we should see Onesimus equal with Philemon as brothers in Christ, something like that. We say Philemon should stop looking down on him because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. And that's a reference to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And actually, one theologian I read reckoned that Onesimus might have come from the coast of the Black Sea, modern-day Ukraine. And if that's right, then he would have been a Scythian slave sold at Ephesus. And that, there's a sort of connection there, because when Paul writes his letter to Colossae, um, which is Philemon's church, he writes, "'Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. That's Colossians uh, 3.11. So 
So the argument goes that this is really the message of the letter. We are all saved by grace, and in Christ we are all equal. Well, true, absolutely. However, that is not what is being emphasized here, I think. The letter to Philemon shows the lengths that Paul is prepared to go to to realize this theology, to put it into action. It shows what he is prepared to risk. He's prepared to risk social isolation for going against the norms of society, a loss of friendship, insecurity in prison, and uh, the accusation that he is being naive. All to ensure, all to ensure that a recent convert from a foreign land of low social status and of limited ability was received with the same love and acceptance as he was. Paul risks his honor and physical security for the sake of love of the lowest in society. That is the gospel in action. That is Paul being Christ-like because Christ gave up his glory, honor, security, and status in order to bring many sons to glory. Now, I want to say a word or two about how Paul uses authority in this letter. I think this is uh, key. Paul says to Philemon that he could order him to do what he wants, but instead appeals on the basis of love. Well, that that is moving himself from a position of power to compel into a position of weakness on the basis of relationship. Paul's authority comes from him being a chosen apostle, but in this letter, he never mentions that at all. He does mention that, like Onesimus, Philemon owes Paul his very self, which probably means that Paul is Philemon's spiritual father, and as such, has the authority of a father to make demands. Now, there is authority in in families, and I think the church should uphold the authority of parents over their children in a society that seems hell-bent on undermining that. However, no one really wants to compel people to do things. It's far better to receive cooperation on the basis of love. You know, I overheard uh, another family where the dad asked one of his sons to help him in the garden, and the son replied, are you asking me or forcing me? Because if you're asking me, then the answer is no. But if you're forcing me, then why did you ask me in the first place? And the son's logic was brilliant, but was small consolation to him as he was forced to help me anyway. Uh, not, not me, the, uh, the, uh, the father of the other family that I do not know. Um, and, and, and what that father really wanted, of course, uh, was a son willing to serve out of love. You know, you can't force someone to love you. And if love is the most important thing about a family, well, then force is always a last resort. So what I think this letter shows is not only the theological goal, you know, all one in Christ, great, but how you get there, namely not through force, but through love. But love does have a sort of a power of its own. Let's have a look at some of the ways that Paul persuades Philemon to do as he asks. And the main way that he achieves his goal is through the use of 
rhetoric and honor. So, first of all, this is not a private letter sent one-to-one. -one. It's sent from Paul, but it's also sent from Paul and Timothy, our brother. And it's sent to Philemon, but also to Aphia, Archippus, and the rest of the church. And in the background, sort of waving, as it were, is Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and Onesimus himself. So this request cannot be ignored or buried. It's gone public. And Paul emphasizes his lack of power. He mentions that he's in prison four times. But he does so more like a sort of badge of honor. You know, I'm suffering from Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Now, ironically, that would cast his status among the saints, uh, uh, not, not as, as an outcast and lowest, but actually raise it um, uh, amongst God's people. In the first two, two or three centuries in the church, it was the martyrs and the prisoners for Christ who held high honor for their suffering in Christ, high status, again, following Christ himself. And he honors Philemon. Paul looks for opportunities to praise what can be, as it were, accredited to his account. So he starts with his love for all God's holy people, his faith in the Lord Jesus. He declares Philemon to be a partner in this faith and that he has given great joy and encouragement to Paul because of his generosity to the Lord's people. So he is publicly lauded, publicly honored. And then finally, he twice calls Philemon his brother. We might ask, is Paul therefore manipulating Philemon? Is that what's going on? Knowing what is coming, is this just sort of setting him up, as it were? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's the character of this letter. I know we're used to being suspicious of compliments and, uh, and sort of, you know, being cynical has become pretty much a national pastime. But when we read Paul, when we read that Paul would like to keep Onesimus with him, that Paul will pay for any debt incurred, even though, you know, we all know that Philemon couldn't possibly charge Paul for anything, and that Paul isn't going to mention, oh, I'm not going to mention that Philemon owes his very self to Paul in the first place. It does sound a bit like Paul is sort of forcing Philemon's hand. But I think that Paul is, what he's doing is helping Philemon to see what is happening through kingdom of God eyes. Philemon should act out of love. Onesimus is Paul's spiritual son. He is now useful in the kingdom of God, helping Paul as a son helps his father, or should do. The central theological concept is that Onesimus has become a Christian, and so Philemon must, must, must treat him as a brother in Christ. What Paul has not done is to break the law or start a revolt against the institution of slavery in general. He's not started a campaign to end global slavery. What would have happened if Paul had decided not to send Onesimus back to his master? Christianity, the Christianity that Paul was spreading, would have been accused of being law-breaking, something that Paul was acutely conscious of being charged with. 
Paul will do almost anything to show that being a Christian doesn't make you antisocial or anarchic. He will not even run away from jail, even though his chains fall off and the door flies open, in case it makes it look like Christians are opposed to justice and the law. He will not undermine Philemon's social standing by forcing him to do anything. Philemon has retained the dignity of being the head of the household, and any action he takes will attract more honor, not less. If he wants Onesimus to stay, well then, Paul has opened the theological door for that to happen. If Philemon agrees to send Onesimus back to Paul, well then, then that will just make him look like a generous benefactor of the gospel. But what he cannot do is treat a brother in Christ like he would a lazy slave. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, there is a real challenge to us here, I think, in the way that Paul goes into bat for Onesimus, even though it risks his security in prison, his reputation in the church, and so on. If Paul was willing to stand up for a rather useless slave of an influential church leader, who might we go into bat for? Who might we be willing to risk our reputation and financial security over? Would we speak up for a drug addict who becomes a Christian and wants support for the church? Would we encourage church members to take them in or take them back, perhaps, as an employee? What about an ex-con who converts in prison? To what extent would we advocate for them to be given all the rights and privileges of a brother and sister in Christ in this church? What if that ex-con were a sex offender? What would it take for them to convince us that their conversion was genuine, that we weren't being taken for a ride? What if others in the church call us naive and point to the statistics for reoffending? I'm not pretending these are easy and obvious questions, but they do seem to flow from this passage that we've been looking at. One response, I think, to these difficult issues is to remember that Philemon was not being asked just to take Paul's word for it, even though Paul was his spiritual father. Paul was writing with Timothy, and all those others at the end of the letter were waving to Philemon in support of what is being written. And so it seems to me that Paul and Epaphras would have discussed this, no doubt, with Timothy long before they reached the letter-writing stage. And so Philemon would have known that this was a group decision, that this wasn't just somebody's taking their word for it. So the main message for Philemon, it seems to me, is that it shows us how the theology of the Bible works out in real life. Jesus is Lord, and we are all brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our Father. And the question that is often asked of Paul is, therefore, does he oppose slavery? It seems such an obvious thing to oppose. It seems to me that in this context, the answer is no. At least, he doesn't oppose it directly. Because he can even envisage, in, in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, envisage Christians having Christian slaves. 
He says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters, so he's writing to Christians about their believing masters, should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Well, devoted, that is, in the way that brothers and sisters are supposed to be devoted to one another and love one another. I do think that we should rehabilitate the habit of mind about thinking and calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ as our primary category of relationship, not just fellow believers. I don't think Paul is making a universal argument against slavery then here saying that something like all humanity is created equal in the eyes of God or something. You, know, you could imagine him doing something like that. His argument here is that Christians must view fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. The solution that Paul offers to the problem of slavery is essentially that the kingdom of God operates a different politics, a politics of fraternity. This is consistent with other arguments that Paul makes, particularly about sexuality. What others do outside the church, that's their problem, that's their concern. But inside the church, there must be no sexual immorality because our family lives by different family values. We are children of the new age in Christ. And this is why I think many people think that Paul's letter to Philemon does, in fact, irreparably damage the master-slave relationship because that power relationship is pretty much impossible to sustain when the main category for the way Christians relate to each other is as brothers and sisters within the same family. You just don't make your own brother a slave. So in conclusion then, um, Paul's strategy here is not to oppose the social structures of the world or rebel against the laws of the land. Instead of attacking the power relationship between master and slave, Paul insists on the fraternal relationship between Christians built on love. Now, in a democracy today, no doubt it is our responsible to hold our political leaders and lawmakers to account and to advocate for change in society as a whole, because we have rights and responsibilities as citizens in our, in our country. But above and beyond those responsibilities, we are obligated to live as brothers and sisters in Christ in the new age of love. We are to submit to one another and serve out of love. That, after all, was the strategy of Jesus himself. He could have called upon a dozen legions of angels to enforce his will, but instead came in weakness and love, calling those who have ears to hear to respond to his invitation to follow him and to join the Christian family. Amen.